All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God in his grace, God in his grace has provided a salvation for us that is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open up God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, it is in the light of your word because your word is a reflection of your character, that you are light and dwell in unapproachable light, and that it is through the light of your word that the issues of life are illuminated for us. And Father, it gives us wisdom because we orient our thinking to your word. We orient our thinking to your thinking. And that means that we, are pro- we, we become properly oriented to reality. It gives us objectivity, helps us to understand the true nature of problems, and it helps us to understand the true solutions. So, Father, as we study your word today, especially as it touches on a major issue in every sinner's life, and that is the problem of the sins of the tongue and our mouths and what we say when we speak that we shouldn't say, and, Father, that that we pray that we might be responsive to the promptings of God the Holy Spirit as he teaches us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's get into our lesson today. This is, um, I think that I thought I changed that title. Maybe I changed it on the wrong slide. It is Grace Orientation in Relation to the Things that We Say. That's the title today, Grace Orientation in Relation to the Things uh, that We Say. And so it's important for us to, again, go back and look at the overall context that we see in Ephesians chapter 4, which is what we're studying. There's a shift, if you remember, that occurs. We started off in the uh, first three chapters. The first three chapters are really talking about um, what God has done for us in blessing us. It starts off in Ephesians 1-3, talking about the fact that God has blessed us with every uh, spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then there's a shift that occurs at the beginning of chapter 4, and it talks, starts to talk about the worthy walk or how the believer is to live. And then we get into the believer's warfare when we get to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. So when we come to any passage of Scripture, it is important to understand context. It's very easy to misinterpret Scripture because context is lost, and you just take a verse out out of context. So the context here from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, through Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, is about describing the lifestyle, the thought life, the speech life, and the actions of the believer in Jesus Christ. And so he began this section, I therefore, the therefore is there because he's drawing conclusions, understanding what God has done for us in the first three chapters to what the implications and applications are from that uh, in terms of our new identity. We are new creatures in Christ. The instant you trust Christ as Savior, there's a radical transformation takes place spiritually. We are regenerated, which means we are born again. We are transferred from the, uh, being under the authority of Satan to be, being under the authority of God. We are made new creatures in Christ. That is our new legal position. Prior to salvation, where were we? We were in Adam, in Adam, and Scripture says, in Adam all die. 
but in Christ all are made alive. That's the focus of Ephesians chapter 2. We are uh, made alive. God made us alive together with him and uh, raised us and seated us with him in the heavenlies. So those chapters talk about this new entity that is brought into existence at our, at the, with the church, and that church is called the new man when we get into Ephesians chapter 2. And so Ephesians chapter 4 picks up on that and talks about the fact that we have already put off the old man and we have put on the new man. And that's just another way of saying we are no longer in Adam, we are now in Christ. And there are protocols for how a person who is now on Christ's team instead of Adam's fallen team, how we are to uh, manifest our lives, how we are to live, how we are to think, how we are to talk, and how we are to uh, conduct our lives and, and how we are to act. So this is all under the metaphor of walking. Walking is a step-by-step procedure, and it's just a metaphor for how we live. So Paul begins this chapter saying, I, therefore the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of that calling, your new position in Christ with which you have been called. And he describes that in the next two verses. He says, it's with all humility and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another or putting up with one another in love or by means of love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's an emphasis here on now that we're on this new team, there's a new protocol. It's supposed to be characterized by humility and gentleness and long-suffering, which are manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we're to work at maintaining the unity of the Spirit, not bringing it about, it's already there, but maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But one of the great dangers of that unity and one of the great dangers of that peace comes from the uh, sins of the tongue. So there's a lot that's said here in relation to speaking. Ephesians 4.15, we're to speak the truth in love, what we say, how we say it. And this is part of what we do in terms of what he describes as every part, every member of the body of Christ doing its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, that's an important phrase, edifying of itself, the body of Christ. We edify, we build up one another by means of love. But that word edification is going to be used again when we get down into Ephesians uh, 4, uh, 29, which is the passage we're looking at this morning, which says, on the one hand, let no corrupt uh, word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good or for necessary edification. Okay, so this 4, 15, and 16 sets us up for what's said in verse 29 to expand it. But the problem is that thing that's between your teeth, your tongue. Scripture talks about the tongue, the mouth, the words that we say, uh, the lips, the fruit of the lips can be praise, or the fruit of the lips can be slander and lies and destruction. So I want to just kind of briefly go over one of the most significant passages in Scripture about this problem of the tongue. And that's in James 3, and it goes down to about verse uh, verse 9. That's all I'm going to look at. James' purpose in writing uh, his epistle was so that his readers would learn to be quick to hear, that is to study the Word of God and to apply it, slow to speak. In other words, be careful Don't rush into saying things that you may regret later or that may be harsh or may be uh, cause sin or disruption in in the local church or in your family. And then slow to anger, which represents mental attitude sins. That's your basic outline for the epistle of James. So in that second section, he 
basically covers it in about nine verses, and he says, my brethren, indicating he's talking to other believers, let not many of you become teachers. Now, he starts off, that's a profound warning for anyone who is a teacher of the Word of God, a communicator of the Word of God, because you're speaking all the time. And it's very easy to let things come out that shouldn't come out, and so there has to be maturity in one who is a teacher because there will we will receive a stricter judgment. Verse 2 says, For we all, all of us, you, me, everybody here, we have a major problem, this passage says, with what we say. It's very difficult. It's the most difficult thing in the world is what this passage is saying. For we all stumble in many things, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a mature man. It's not perfect in the sense of flawless. It's that word that we see uh, taking us back to James uh, 1, 3, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces maturity. It's that same word. It produces endurance. Our endurance will have its uh, perfect way in the next verse, which is the same word, teleos. So we stumble in many ways. Uh, The one who does not stumble is a mature man. So part of spiritual maturity is a person who has self-control, self-mastery over what he says. He is, if he is able, if he does not stumble in word, the verse says, he is able also to bridle the whole body. So now he's going to shift into a metaphor, a metaphor related, an analogy related to a horse. I don't know how many of you have spent much time around horses or working with horses or putting bridles on horses, but that was one of the things that I enjoyed doing when I was a high school kid and also some a little later was uh, one of the jobs that you got to do if you were a high school worker at Camp Penile. You started off washing dishes. And then after you had worked there a year or so and washing dishes, then you got to go muck out the stables and work down in in the stables. And if you were were adept at it, you also got a chance to help out with the horses. And I enjoyed doing that. In fact, I got even sent to some training for, for wranglers and got to do some of that. But when you the, the horse's mouth is extremely sensitive and tender. And so when you're slipping a bridle into the horse's mouth, you have to be careful not to uh, pinch his lips or anything. But that, that little bridle that's not very large uh, can control that whole animal, whether it's just a small pony or whether it's something lar- large like a uh, Clydesdale or a Belgian plow horse or something like that, it can be completely controlled by that bridle. And that's the image that he's using here. He says, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. You can completely control that horse just with the bridle. And the tongue is like that. The tongue is a small thing yet it has a power that goes far beyond its size. And he then goes on to describe that, uh, uses a different analogy, uses the ship's rudder in verses 4 and 5, but then he says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Just think about that. That, That's a very strong statement. Each one of us has something that is powerful enough that it can destroy people, it can destroy relationships, it can destroy families, it can destroy reputations. That's our tongue. It is set among our members... And I think there that members are talking about it's the members of the physical body. It is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. The sins of the tongue can defile the whole body. And sets on fire the course of nature. There it's referring to creation. And is set on fire by hell. This is, this is phenomenal imagery to get, catch our attention that not having control of what we say and how we say it can have much uh, tremendous amount of damage that goes far beyond anything we might imagine. 
And then he gives another uh, example. He says, for every kind of beast and bird or reptile or, uh, or creature of the sea is tamed and is being uh, uh, tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. That is stated as a universal principle. No man can tame the tongue. That is strong. Now, just earlier it said a, ma- a mature a mature believer is uh, able to uh, bridle the tongue, and who can control it is someone who can control his whole body. But here he's reminding us that no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. No man can tame the tongue, but God, with God, nothing is impossible. And self-mastery, as we'll see, self-mastery, self-control, is a self-mastery of the tongue. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says this uh, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And what's the last one? Self-control. And this isn't just sort of the normative self-control, self-discipline that you might see of anyone who is engaged in uh, athletics or engaged in any sort of discipline that they that they need to learn or study or whatever. Um, that this goes beyond that. This is a self-mastery related to the sin nature. That's the context of Galatians five: walking by the Spirit and not walking according to the flesh or the sin nature. So as we grow and walk by the Spirit, then he works in us to give us a self-mastery. And that comes, it's listed last. I don't think that it's listed last because it's the the last thing to get, you get control. But I think that with a lot of people, self-mastery is one of the hardest and most difficult. And we often think and look at our Christian life and we might say, I just don't feel like I've gotten there at all. Um, but we do. It's amazing how God, the Holy Spirit, works that way. So uh, the every kind of beast, etc., is tamed, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, but God can tame the tongue. And verse 9 says, With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So out of the tongue comes good things, Bible doctrine, the Word of God, blessing God. And then something happens, and two minutes later we're uh, gossiping or there's slander or we're saying things out of anger, and, and, uh, and it's just evil. So we have to be careful of that. And the world is a prime example of what happens when... Uh, with unruly tongues that are not under control of the Word of God. Verse 17, as I pointed out, in terms of the context, we're to walk worthy, and that is now uh, the contrast is we're not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles do. We're not to walk in the futility of our thinking, which means you have to overhaul your thinking. Uh, So many Christians don't understand that from the... uh, Probably from the earliest church age, there's always been a problem with emotion and with mysticism, soft mysticism in some cases, uh, very strong uh, mysticism in other ways. Mysticism is just letting emotion be your ultimate determiner of right and wrong rather than the Word of God. And there's always reactions to that as we go through history. And you see time periods like following the Reformation, which was a time of great emphasis on the knowledge of the word and intellectual growth of the church. But and and the emphasis on intellectual growth in the in the world was often referred to as the rise of rationalism in the Enlightenment. But then a reaction to that set in, a reaction to the rationalism of the world. And then that impacted the church with a reaction uh, against the uh, emphasis on knowledge in the church. And that new movement that came out of it is referred to as romanticism. And romanticism is an emphasis on emotion as your ultimate determiner rather than the use of reason. 
And since that time, we've had more and more problems in the American uh, evangelical movement with emotion. But the scripture emphasis is we have to think. We are not to, Paul says in uh, Romans 12:2, we are not to be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world, but we are be, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the renewing of our thinking. We have to think differently. You're not going to act differently if you don't think differently. And it's a matter of reorienting your thoughts by the Word of God, that we have to be uh, resist the pressure from the world and be transformed by the renewing of our mind by the Word of God, that he, we are sanctified by the Word of God. So there's that contrast. Now we've, we've gone through this passage. We've seen that we've already put off concerning the former man. We've already put it off. It's past. It's done. The old man, we're no longer in Adam. We're now in Christ. The old man, the rest of the world outside the church, the old man, they're still in Adam, and they grow more and more corrupt all the time. But we are being renewed in the spirit of our emotions, right? No, that's not what it says. Just want to make sure you are awake. We are to be renewed again in the spirit of our mind and that we have put on, we already put on the new man. We're now in Adam and that new man was created, the body of Christ, according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, if we go to Romans 6, 6, which is one of the first places Paul uses this old man uh, uh, verbiage, he talks about uh, how we get out, or how we're out of the control of the sin nature. And he says in Romans 6, 6, uh, no, because we know this, that the old man, that is all that we were in Adam, was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be done away with. So, so the purpose, one of the purposes of the cross is to break the tyranny of the sin nature. Before you're saved, you have one choice. That is to follow your sin nature in either human good or to follow your sin nature in terms of personal sins. You don't have any other option because you're spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead. But once you trust Christ, you're a new creature in Christ. And you're now been uh, regenerated. And that power of the sin nature has been broken. But the sin nature is still there. But it, you have an option. You have choice. And that's what Paul is pointing out in this section of Romans 6.6, 6, that the power of the body of sin could be done away with, the power of the body of sin, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died, and we died positionally when we trusted Christ, has been freed from sin. Now if, and it's true, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Christ gave to give us new life. He then says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves or consider yourselves or think about yourselves this way. It's a thought word. Uh, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Think of yourselves when you face temptation. Say, you know, I don't have to do that. I have a choice. I can either follow my sin nature or I can walk by the Spirit. Uh, be dead to sin, but be alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Conclusion, do not let sin reign in your body. Don't let sin reign in your life. You have an option now. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of of righteousness to God, and your members would refer at the least to your tongue, to your mouth, okay? So we go back to our context, Ephesians 4.25, that's correctly translated, therefore, uh, therefore you have already put off the lie. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Okay, so it's already talking about how we're to talk, how we're to speak. We're to speak the truth with his neighbor here. The neighbor's obviously a 
another believer because it says, for we are members of one another. Uh, Unbelievers are not part of that one another. And so we are to speak the truth. So the context here that I've been emphasizing is the Word of God. Now we see all of these commands in this section. So it's going to be a rugged time of application and implication from uh, there's 27 commands and several uh, imperatival participles. So uh, we have quite a bit to deal with. And that's why we studied about all the problem solving by the spiritual skills that God has given us in order to handle the temptation of the sin nature. And so when, as I've finished up several weeks ago with this, we see that grace orientation at the bottom now is the focal point in this section. All Everything in here, uh, in, in, uh, when we start in verse uh, 25 uh, down to the end of the chapter is talking about grace and being gracious. So we've uh, put off the lie and we're to speak truth with one another. It's not gracious to let people uh, not understand the truth. And we get uh, commands that, going back to verse 15, that's with speaking the truth in love so that we may grow up in all things. So it's uh, talking about spiritual growth as well. Uh, Ephesians 4.17, on that second point I made, it expands this, commanding us to speak truth with our neighbors, part of the body of Christ. The third point was that the command in verse 28 uh, is toward the one who is a thief. And uh, actually, it is more correctly stated, let the thief steal no longer. But rather, notice in all of these, there's going to be a negative command and a positive command. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So that's talking about grace in action once again. Now, today we're going to look at the control of our mouths. Last time we looked at the uh, personal responsibility, but today we're looking at the control of our mouths. So, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, what this is saying is pretty clear to a degree. There's a negative command, a prohibition. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Then there's the contrast, the positive statement of what is to come out of our mouth, what is good for necessary edification. And then the purpose for this is that it may impart grace to the hearer. So again, the focus is on grace orientation, being gracious to others. But we have to start off trying to understand what this means when it says, let no corrupt word proceed or come out of your mouth. What does that mean by a, by a corrupt word? There are a lot of different ways in which this is uh, translated uh, by um, various translations. In the ESV, it says, let there be no corrupting talk. The NASB 95 says, let there be no unwholesome word. Uh, the RSV says, let there be no evil talk. I think that's a little more within the context of what has been said uh, back in verse 25, that we've put off the lie. The lie is evil. Uh, so I think that's trying to deal more with the broader context here, uh, the evil talk. The message, which is a translation that I love to hate, uh, just says, let there be no foul or dirty talk. Well, that, I think, is more of a subset, okay? But if you read it as just foul or dirty talk, then it's basically saying, well, there, there are certain words I su- shouldn't use, uh, certain things I shouldn't talk about. Uh, it's a lot more than that. that. That just reduces it to something that's very simplistic. And... Um, and then the New Living Translation also does the same thing by using by translating it as foul or abusive language. Now, I think that hits a good application point that we shouldn't use abusive language 
with one another, with believers. You shouldn't use abusive language to people you don't know. You shouldn't use abusive language to people you love. You shouldn't use abusive language within the home or within the family or within the marriage. Um, But that's a subset of this broad category, I think, that is stated here by the phrase corrupt word. And we have to interpret that in terms of the command to speak truth with the neighbor, that corrupting words are speaking things that conform to the lie of the human viewpoint of the world system. The word in the Greek that is translated corrupt is the word sapras, which means in its literal sense, it refers to food that has become spoiled or rotten. Don't you love it when you open up your refrigerator and you bought some fruit a few days ago and you reach in there to get it out and it's already uh, spoiled and rotten? Or you got some uh, lettuce and you got a bag of of, uh, salad, uh, various uh, lettuces for salad, and you take it out and it's already turning to liquid and brown and uh, that's what this is used in its literal sense, something that it no longer uh, serves its purpose. It's been rotten or spoiled or corrupted. But figuratively, then, it is used of something that is unwholesome, something that is evil. And uh, it's contrasted earlier with this concept of truth back in, back in verse, verse 25. But I want you to hold your place here and turn with me to Matthew. Matthew's easy to find. It's the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 12, one of the most significant chapters uh, that we have in the Scripture. Just to remind you, in Matthew you have a turning point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus began his ministry, he followed up on the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's message was to call the people to change their orientation to God because the kingdom that God had promised in the Old Testament was about to come in the person of the king, who was the Lord Jesus Christ. So John, as the forerunner, is announcing that this is about to happen, so you need to repent or change your uh, orientation to God, get right with the Lord according to the Mosaic law, so that you're ready for the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his ministry, he had the same message. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the same as the gospel of the church age. The gospel of the kingdom was repent for the kingdom is at hand. That's what Jesus proclaimed. That's what his disciples were sent out to proclaim. But the, not, uh, though a lot of people did and responded positively to the message, there were many more that did not, especially the religious leaders. And so as time went by, more and more tension occurred between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and some of the others. And so this comes to a head in chapter 12. And they accuse him of casting out demons in the power of Satan. And so in, at the end of the chapter, Jesus is confronting them with the fact that they have become false teachers. And that's a, uh, by claiming that he performed his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it was a one-time event. It was unpardonable, not in terms of eternal salvation, but in terms of, okay, if you've reached the point of no return. You've rejected and rejected and rejected um, the gospel of the kingdom to this point, and now this is it. Uh, what you're setting course an irreversible consequence. There will come judgment on this nation because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so he is now talking to them in verse 33 about um, and accusing them of be, that they are false teachers, and you can know them by their fruit. Now, the context is not saying that fruit is how a person lived, but the fruit is what they taught. Remember, we started off in James 3 talking about the fact that there will be greater judgment for teachers because of the sins of the tongue. So Jesus says to them, either make the tree good 
and its fruit bad. And that word bad is the word sapros that we see as translated as corrupt. So he says either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Here he's talking about what they have said. They are uh, false prophets. And so it's not talking about their behavior. It's talking about what they have taught. It's the content of their teaching. It's their spirituality. which is their sins of the tongue in terms of teaching false doctrine. And he calls them a brood of vipers. That's another interesting turn of the phrase, which is lost in the English. The word brood means the, the children, the seeds, as it were, and vipers are the serpent. Remember what God said to Eve in Genesis 3, or to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, announcing the gospel? that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the serpent would uh, bite the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent are those who follow Satan. So the word brood means the descendants or the seed of the viper, seed of the serpent. So he is directly connecting them to Genesis 3.15. He is saying, you seed of the serpents, you seeds of the serpent, rather, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, verse 34 tells us that the issue here isn't behavior, it is what they are saying. And the point that I'm making here is he's, he uses this same word, sapros, that is used for let no corrupt word come out of your mouth. Jesus uses that in ter- terms of t- describing the false teaching of the Pharisees. Now, remember what you have back in uh, Ephesians uh, 4.25. It is that we have put off the lie. The lie is the cor- our corrupt words and we have put on the truth. So we have to contextually understand how that that ties together. So the corrupt word here, it should not be translated as foul or abusive language. It's, it's much greater than that. It's much broader. It has to do with anything that is said that is contrary to the content of the Word of God, anything that is related to the teaching of the world, the opinions of the world, the viewpoints of the world. So let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But And then the contrast makes that even more clear. What is good for necessary edification? Edification means that which is built up. It, it refers to a physical building. It's from the word oikos, meaning uh, a house or, or structure, and it has uh, this idea of, of building up something. So that which is human viewpoint or human opinions, even if they sound good, there's a lot of very nice-sounding corruption coming out of the pulpits in America because they do not believe that the Word of God is sufficient. And so they have diluted it and destroyed it with a lot of human viewpoint. So, so that is what is, it, it, and it, therefore, it can't be good for edification. Edification only comes as a result of studying the Word of God and letting the Word of God, under the ministry of the Spirit of God, transform you from the inside out. So it is the, the contrast between the corrupt word and the good word is that which is contrary to the Bible and that which is uh, from the Bible. That, and then the purpose, that it may impart grace to the hearers, that we should be thinking about what am I saying and does, is this profitable for the spiritual health of the person that is hearing it? Or am I leading them in the wrong direction? So this is the focal point. We have to think about what comes out of our mouth. This is why David prays in Psalm 19:14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. The words of my mouth. 
how many times, don't answer the question out loud, have you prayed that God would help you focus and think more about what you say and how you say it? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my thinking, the things I dwell upon, the things I reflect upon, what's going on in my thought life, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. Then the verse we read earlier, set of verses we read earlier, these six things the Lord hates. I like the old King James. This, these six things are an abomination to the Lord. He abominates these things. Very strong word. A proud look. A lying tongue. Notice three of these seven are sins of the tongue. A lying tongue, a false witness, and one who sows discord. How do you sow discord? You slander, you gossip, you um, tell things that are not true about people, or you tell things that might be true, but then there's a wink and a nod and uh, other things are understood about it. So it's the sins of the tongue that sow discord. Uh, once, you know, once you say something about somebody, you can no longer control it, and that can take on a life of itself. You all remember probably as kids, uh, we called it gossip. Other people called it telephone. Uh, there were lots of different names for this game where you'd sit in a circle and there would uh, the, the first person would be given a word or a phrase and then they would say it to the next person and whisper it to the next person. They would whisper it to the next person. And after it went through about 10 kids, then the last one was to say what it was and it was always wrong. And something got added, something got left out. It was always wrong. And that's what happens. That's why gossip is so evil, because things may be added or said that are untrue. Proverbs 10 has several statements that uh, focus on the sins of the mouth. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life. Notice the contrast. On the one hand, it is the well of life. That's the mouth of the righteous. But on the other hand, the violence covers. Are the, what it is saying is that the major characteristic of the mouth of the wicked is violence. It can be hatred. It can be slander, divisiveness, bitterness. Proverbs 10:19. in the multitude of words. See, some people don't know when to stop talking. That's a problem with some pastors. That's a problem with a lot of people. They just like to talk. Uh, so in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips. What's another word for that? Self-discipline, self-mastery. He who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 10.31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. But there has to be wisdom there. There has to be some spiritual growth first. But the perverse tongue, that's me. also the word there means crooked or distorted. Uh, the perverse tongue will be cut out. Proverbs 4.24, Solomon writes, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. So the word deceitful is in synonymous parallelism to perverse. Perverse is from an interesting word. It is the word ikshut, which means something that is crooked. It is not straight. And it is a very descriptive word. And in the theological word book of the Old Testament, the writer says that this word is a descriptive word in homardiology, uh, that emphasizes the perversion and the twisted nature of sin. Okay? And so goes on and talks about how its derivatives are used to describe the twisted and perverted acts of sinful men. So we are to put aside a deceitful mouth and perverse lips. In Proverbs 8.13, we read, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. Notice how you have hate in the first line and hate in the last line. It sort of brackets the center. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
And part of hating evil is the perverse mouth. Proverbs 11, 9 and 11, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. But see, in Ephesians 4, we're to build up the neighbor, uh, not to destroy the neighbor. The hypocrite destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Verse uh, Proverbs 11, 11, but by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. I don't know that we could say that that applies to any nations or states that we are familiar with today, so um, not, not in our life, so we don't need to worry about that, right? Uh, fake news is, I don't even know what's true anymore. There's so many different things said. Truth has been sacrificed. Uh, Proverbs 13.3, he who guards his mouth preserves his life. But he who opens wide his lips, and that basically means he who talks a lot, uh, shall have destruction. Verse uh, 14, 25, a true witness delivers souls, delivers life. But a deceitful witness speaks lies. A true witness is going to give the truth, and maybe someone's life will be saved from punishment. But somebody who's a deceitful wicked may bring a man to condemnation and the loss of life. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. So often somebody comes at us angry, we get defensive in response in anger instead of being relaxed and responding calmly. Soft answer turns away wrath, but a soft, uh, excuse me, a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse 4 of chapter 15 says, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks, uh, breaks the spirit. And lastly, seventeen Proverbs seventeen four nine, an evil doer gives heed to false lips. Maybe we could paraphrase that: an evil doer gives heed to fake news. Uh, a liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. He who covers a transgression seeks love. Don't go talking about it. Don't go telling everybody. Uh, uh, it covers a transgression, seeks love. Don't share your dirty laundry with everybody around. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. So our verse this morning in Ephesians 4.29 focuses on how we are to master and govern our tongue. That it is to not, we should not be using human viewpoint in our conversations, that which is different from the Word of God but that it should be that which promotes spiritual health and spiritual growth in our hearers, imparting grace to the hearer. Now, the next two verses are also part of this context because it begins with this conjunction and, so it's adding something to it in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, this is going to bring in a whole new dimension. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? And then a second important doctrine, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That relates to eternal security. And then let all bitterness. Well, there's a connection here that we're going to see from the Old Testament that's important. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you. See, corrupt word connects down here to evil speaking, uh, be put away from you with all malice. Now, just a hint, Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, Isaiah says, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us, talking about Israel. And the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. What's he talking about there? In a word, grace. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Now this, remember, this is 700 B.C., So he's not talking about what happened at the cross. He's talking about a historical event. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. This is talking about the deliverance of the nation historically, not individual salvation. 
In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. From where? Redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And he bore them and carried them. Where? In the wilderness, all the days of old. But they rebelled, and what did they do? They grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. So when did this happen, that they grieved the Holy Spirit? What was going on there? What was going on there was their rebellion at a place called Meribah, mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And at Meribah, uh, they contended, they argued with God, and they fought with God. And because of that, uh, Moses also sinned in striking the rock instead of speaking, and God will bring punishment on uh, Moses so he could not enter the land. So when we get into this next verse, just talking about the grieving of the Spirit and going back contextually to understand what the Scripture says, it opens up you know, a whole vista of information. So we'll be covering that when we return next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for our opportunity to be uh, taught your word today, to have God the Holy Spirit challenge us with the fact that we need to uh, bring discipline to our mouths, what we say, how we say it. And Father, we pray that we would be more mindful of this, that it is ex- one of the most extremely difficult things for us to master in this life, in the si- are the sins of the tongue. But you can do this, and God the Holy Spirit will do it as we walk with him. He will bring self-mastery as a fruit. Father, we pray for anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they might clearly understand what the issue is for eternal salvation. We are born spiritually dead and physically alive, but the only way that we can have real life is to have the spiritual death problem solved, and that was solved at the cross where Christ paid the penalty for our sins. For the Scripture says that the uh, penalty of sin, the wages of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift. It's not something we work for. We don't have to clean up our life. We don't have to clean up our thoughts. We don't have to clean up our language. We don't have to clean up what we say. All of this is related to how we should live once we're saved. But what the Scripture says is that salvation itself is a free gift. We trust in Christ as Savior, and that instant we're transformed into a new creature in Christ, and then all of these blessings are ours for eternity. And then we have to decide what we're going to do with them. We have to grow. So, Father, we pray that you would make this gospel, this good news, clear to those who are listening, that those who are not saved would be clear on what they should do to be saved believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And those that are saved will further have a good understanding of their salvation. And we thank you for that. So great salvation. In Christ's name, amen.